Hello and welcome to another episode of Unpacking the Case, the podcast by David Jones-Bold, the real estate law specialists. Today and as ever, I'm joined by our head of legal training, Richard Snape. Hello, Richard. Hello, Lizzie. How are you? It's been a long time. It has been a while since we've done one of these um, podcasts. So um, today we're looking at, well, you did a webinar on the 12th of May, which was last week as we're recording, um, and it covered the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954 and when it applies. Um, And there was a few cases that came up that I think you wanted to spend a bit more time on in a podcast form. So that's what we're going to do today, if that's okay with you. That's fine. Great. So should we start with London College of Business and Tareen, which was a 2018 High Court case that you, I don't think, got round to mentioning at all on Thursday? Yeah, yeah. It's it's an old familiar favourite, the background law. Uh, And it's something we've actually done podcasts on before. And that's the lease uh, license distinction that leases of property rights and uh, well, the combined third party purchases uh, and uh, licenses aren't. They're purely contractual and uh, they don't come within the 54 Landlord and Tenant Act. Landlord and Tenant Act says you have to have the benefit of the act. Uh, you Section 23 says that you have to occupy under a lease, at least partly for business purposes. I'm basically not a license. And Tareem is. Uh, an example of it. Do you want to go into the background facts of the case itself then? Yeah, it's a strange set of facts and you wonder why the, the landlord, licensor in inverted commas, did what he you know, did. It would have been so much easier to, to have got it right. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it all took place in Barking in Essex, come London, uh, a place called Wakering Road. I've never been to Barking, but uh, and a, a building called Monteagle Court. And um, the London College of Business were um, leasing, though they were tenants of two units in this uh, Monteagle Court. And as the name suggests, they were running a college there. Um, they originally had uh, validation from the University of Wales to um, uh, run a sort of MBAs and master's degrees and bachelor's degrees there. Um, But things seem to have gone awry for them when they featured on Sky News that they'd been breaking immigration laws. This was actually not found to proven by the end of the day, but it uh, led to the University of Wales withdrawing their validation agreement and also led to the um, number of students being uh, plummeting. They were expecting in 2014, they were expecting 500, they got nine. Uh, not 909, um, it's a lonely place. Uh, they, um, they then turned into a series of one-year termed license agreements with the landlord, Tareem, um, although limited now to just doing Excel and um, sort of English, English language courses is what they were doing at the moment. Uh, and they're all called license agreements and they had various terms, you know, it was, they had to pay a license fee as opposed to rent and they Agreements said they realised that they don't come with, they haven't got a lease and they're not within the 54 Landlord and Tenant Act. And it said that uh, uh, the landlord, the license also, it could have an absolute right to enter the premises on reasonable notice. And if you didn't pay your license fee, they could uh, give you 14 days notice to leave. So they had all these things. So some of the agreements over the years haven't even been signed, including the current one for, for 2014. Um, and basically what happened was there was a dispute throughout 2013 and 14 
about uh, service charges. And the Tareem uh, decided to settle the dispute by uh, one Sunday on September the 21st, when the place wasn't occupied, they just changed the locks and barred entry to the London College of Business. London College of Business then, a few days later on September the 24th, went to the county court and got an injunction requiring Tareem to give them the new keys within 30 days, which he did. But they then wanted to claim compensation for all their losses. Don't know where they got it from. I just, I, I'm not going to go into the sort of valuation and compensation side of things and just stick to the lease license. They were originally claiming for lost profits uh, and lost goodwill, breach of quiet enjoyment. A million pounds. That was sort of three days and nine students, uh, but uh, a million pounds. Uh, yeah, paying a lot those students. Uh, they went down to a claim of £189,415. But one of the questions was basically, have they got a lease or a licence? Because if they're a lease, if they're tenants under a lease, they had actually gone into, back into possession. But if they're tenants under a lease, they're probably going to get a bit more compensation. So what did the courts decide then? Well, as you say, Lizzie, it's one that you've come across on numerous occasions. They was that the courts always do when you're talking about lease licenses. They quoted a case that's in our 20 top cases, uh, Street and Mountford, if you remember that one, from 1985 House of Lords case in Lord Templeman. If you've got exclusive possession at a rent for a term, the presumption is, you know, you can always, there are exceptions, but basically you're a tenant. And famously, Lord Templeman said that uh, if you've got a five-pronged instrument for digging, uh, it's a fork, even if you call it a spade. Missing the point, which has always annoyed me since I learned that when I was in university degree, because forks have got four prongs, not five, and it just really annoys me. Um, but uh, anyway, I did write to him. Uh, they, uh, that's the starting point. There might be exceptional circumstances, and there had been a, well, there was a case that I did mention um, in, the, in, the, in the webinar called uh, the 2006 Court of Appeal case, or Clear Channel and Manchester City Council and said it might be easier to genuinely show a license if you've got parties who are, you know, sort of legally represented and it's business premises as opposed to residential property like Street and Mountford. But um, the court decided that it was clearly a sham. You know, they'd been there for years. They'd fitted out. They obviously didn't want the license or to uh, have a right uh, to just get rid of them on short notice. They did actually also say that, uh, sort of word of warning for people, they could have peaceably re-entered. That sort of 14 days notice period was, was the equivalent of a forfeiture provision for non-payment of rent. And they could have used that, but they've been accepting rental and that waives the right to forfeit. You still got a right to forfeit, even if it's a 54 hour protected lease as it was, section 24.2 makes that quite clear. But at the end of the day, the tenants, the London College of Business won, and it was a tenancy agreement. And they got £25,104, not the million they were originally asking. Sounds so a bit more sensible if you, if you ask me. I do agree. So what should the landlord have done in this instance? Well, it just seems like something out of the 1970s, this sort of licence agreement and the like, although you do still see them. Uh, if in doubt, uh, you assume it's a tenancy agreement and if you want the property back, 
uh, at the end of the fixed term of a year, if that's what it is, you serve the 54 Act warning notice. And what they seem to be doing with their agreement was just much more difficult than if they'd have just served exclusion notices, you know, excluding the Act. And say so it's like something, I'm not sure who was uh, representing, but it was like something out of the early 80s, Pre Street in Mountford. Yeah. If in doubt, contract out, my, my catchphrase. So what's the message for the future in this one then? Well, that's it. Just uh, exclude the 54 Act if you've got any doubts whatsoever. Sometimes there can be licences, genuine licences. The service occupiers, caretakers, for instance, and we've done a couple of um, news flashes on guardianship schemes, Lalava, if you remember that late last year, uh, where you let people into occupation it's a sort of glorified caretaker, otherwise homeless people who move, move in and sort of stop trespassers, squatters getting in and make sure the properties aren't vandalised. They are almost certainly genuine licences. They've got a lot of other problems. If people listen to our podcasts, they'll know. But uh, they are genuine licences. But uh, if in doubt, you exclude the act if you want the property back. Okay, thank you. Shall we move on now to another um, matter, which is... A- another case that was a bit further back in the past 1997 the year I was born I'm sure you'd be pleased to hear Richard no I was seven <laughs> so this one's called and I'm probably saying this wrong but SL, SLT SL- I think it's a CELTA they, they, they make stationery they're quite famous making stationery but uh, there were landlords here Let's go with Acelta. So Acelta AB and Pearl Assurance and this was a court of appeal case as I said from 1997. Do you want to start with the background facts to this one? Yeah, it was uh, it's a very important case, actually, although some of the background, the laws changed subsequently in 2004 when the, the regulatory reform order of 2003 came into force in June of that year. Uh, basically, it's about uh, how tenants are not necessarily bound uh, if it's a 54 up protected lease by the um, statutory continuation tenancy at the end of the fixed term. They can give at least three months notice under Section 27 of the Act um, to leave terminating the the, the lease no early in the end of the fixed term. At the time of this case, the notice had to terminate, uh, well, if it would be on the end of the fixed term, it could be at least three months, but it had to terminate on a legal quarter date. Um, So you were very limited to dates, sort of, I had to terminate on sort of Michaelmas Day and Lady Day and the likes, Christmas. Um, so you might end up giving much more than three months notice. Nowadays, it's just three months per se, and the rent will be uh, apportioned accordingly. That's some of the, the background law. Shall I tell you the, the sort of background facts? Yes, please. It was all took place in Peterborough, mm-hmm. as I have been to, uh, and a place called um, Andal Road, which is one of the main thoroughfares in Peterborough, the Guild Hall. And uh, Pearl Assurance had taken on two, well, one lease and one under lease, actually. They'd taken a five-year lease from uh, Aselta, uh, but uh, they'd also taken on a sublease of the same, in the same premises, but, you know, in the same building, from British Sugar um, PLC. Uh, the leases uh, would come to an end on February the 14th, uh, 1993. 
Um, they didn't want the premises. They didn't want them to stay put in the premises. And so they originally gave notice to terminate um, the various uh, their leases. But the notices, the original notices were void. They either didn't give at least three months notice or they didn't terminate on the quarter day. Um, and so they vacated the property on December the 6th uh, and um, basically refused to pay the rent beyond you know, February the 14th, the contractual termination date. In the meantime, the landlords had served a Section 25 notice, purportedly terminating the lease and relying on grounds F and G, um, demolishing or reconstructing. The tenant refused to pay beyond the, the term date. But in the meantime, uh, they served the correct notice on January the 16th of, of, two, of 1993. They, they served the correct notice purportedly terminating the lease on the midsummer quarter day, June the 24th. Um, the landlord then argued that, well, you served me notice terminating the lease on June the 24th. Uh, therefore, you still owe me rent until June the 24th. And the tenant argued, no, I don't. The lease came to an end February the 13th, uh, February the 14th. And that's as long as I have to pay you the rent, even though I've sort of given you notice in January. So what was the decision? And so it's an extremely important decision. Uh, the Court of Appeal basically said that uh, at the time you served the notice, you weren't within the 54 Act in January the 16th, you know, 2013, because you'd vacated the previous December. And to come within the Act, as I mentioned, you have to occupy under a lease, at least partly for business purposes, and they weren't occupying the premises. And therefore, you might have served notice under the Act, but the, the Act doesn't apply when you serve the notice and you're not bound by the notice. You're, you can basically just leave the premises before the termination date, the contractual termination date, and not bother with a notice at all. Or even if you have served a notice, if you're not occupying for business purposes at the end of the fixed term, you're not bound by the notice. Which is quite bad news for landlords because you know you tenant you might be expecting the tenants to still be there until June the twenty fourth and uh, advertising accordingly when the tenant can just you know end of the fixed term up and leave and even if they've said they're going to serve notice beyond February they can still up and leave. Are there any other examples of this? Well, one of the problems for the Court of Appeal decision is there have been a previous nineteen ninety Court of Appeal case called Longacre Securities and. Uh, electroacoustic sounds, uh, which had said otherwise, as long as you've come within, you've come within the act at some stage, you know, you're bound by the notices. But there'd been a previous 1976 case, uh, which I did briefly mention, actually called Morrison and Manders, um, where the Court of Appeal had said something completely different. You know, it's the relevant date, is the date you serve the notice. You have to come within the 54 Act then. So they just basically, and quite controversially, refused to follow the, the Longacre case and uh, the tenants won. What then happened is when the regulatory reform business tenancies order came in in June the 1st, uh, 2004, and uh, modified quite significantly the, the 54 Act, the, the Assault of Pearl Assurance case was, was um, confirmed by the statute. So you don't have to give notice if you're not occupying for business purposes by the end of the fixed term. Um, but uh, even if you have given notice, you're not bound by that. Okay, thank you.
There, there are problems, though, as we'll see in the last of the cases. There are some reasons you might want to stay put. And uh, we'll mention that now. Yeah, sure. so, the, so the next case is Sight and Sound Education and Books. And this was a year later, 1998, in um, a High Court decision. Yeah. Uh, it's... Uh, several cases like this is about compensation for disturbance which shall i tell you about that yeah why not yeah it's when the landlord's using a, a non-fault ground uh to oppose a new lease e f or g e undesirable subletting is very very rare but f uh where you intend to demolish or reconstruct or carry out substantial works necessitating the tenants removal is something we've talked about in podcasts in the past and g is where you Occupy for you want to occupy for your own purposes. You want to basically move as a landlord into the premises yourself. Uh, in those circumstances, they're non-fault, as I mentioned, and so the, the the legislation entitles the tenant to to compensation for disturbance in section thirty-seven of the Act. And you can get rateable value for the premises by way of compensation. Uh, or if you've uh, occupied for fourteen years immediately preceding the lease coming to an end for the purpose of the act you can get double compensation it can be worth having but you have to occupy for the 14 years immediately preceding the lease coming to an end for the purpose of the act and that's what sight and sound and books was about so what's the facts of this case yeah this one all took place in london charing cross road 118 to 120 if you know it uh and uh, there were five, uh, there were three different leases um well, they'd all you know, sort of, that's not particularly relevant for the, for the decision. They, all these leases, same landlord, same tenant, uh, they had 14 years, more than 14 years occupation. And the landlord served a section 25 notice opposing a new lease on both grounds, F and G. Uh, the existing lease came to an end on know, September the 28th, um, uh, 1997. The landlord's notice was served in February of 1997, was, was just over one year. Um, sort of, it, was about, it was a year's notice, it's going to be six months to a year. And the notice uh, terminated in February 1998, February 25th. The tenant left and, um, at, so just before the end of the fixed term of the tenancy, September the 25th, as opposed to September the 28th. And claims I don't have to, you know, sort of, well, I, he doesn't have to pay rent beyond September the 28th, as in the Aselta case, but he claims his compensation for disturbance. And that's basically what this case was about. So what was the decision? Well, it's a High Court case. And the High Court basically said, that, you know, they talked a lot about occupation. There's a lot of cases that they discussed about uh, the meaning of, of occupation. And the fact that section 37, section 37, subsection 3 of the Act says you have to occupy for the 14 years to get your double compensation immediately preceding the lease coming to an end for the purpose of the Act. And section 37 goes on to say that if there's been a section 25 notice served with tenants requesting a new lease under section 26, the uh, lease comes to an end, not at the end of the fixed term for the purpose of the Act, but at the end of the section 25 notice or the... Uh, the um, date of a new lease for the section 26 request and therefore you'd left several months too early 
in September, you should have stayed put if you wanted to compensate the compensation. So it's a sort of trade-off between a salty and, uh, you know, sort of not having to pay rental beyond the end of the fixed term and potentially losing your compensation when landlords are using grounds F or G. I suppose you sort of just calculate which is the best to have, really. Are there any other issues? Uh, yeah, there's another provision, Section 38.2 of the 54 Act, which is, well, frequently you'll see in, in the institutional leases uh, a clause that uh, excludes compensation for disturbance. So you might think, what's this? the point of it all? That clause is void if you can show five years uh, occupation immediately preceding the date the tenant uh, is to quit the holding. Um, so if the tenant's basically been there for five years or more, then, you know, occupying for business purposes, then that, uh, that um, exclusion will be void. Have there been any cases on that? Yeah, there was a similar time, about 1998, there was a, just before the sight and sound case, there was a case, I'll get the pronunciation right, Bakiyaki. How does that sound? Not sure what you're trying to say. <laughs> That's the name, It's well, say, in, in the academic agency. Uh, it's Italian restaurant. Not with my. Right. Okay. You know, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a linguist. Um, the well, you, I know the very spot. You'll be glad to know. Uh, it's an Italian restaurant in Bath, uh, and it's on. Do you know North Parade? Yeah. There's a Greek restaurant there now, which I've been to. I don't think you can talk about some of these cases unless you've been to the place. Uh, and Opa, I think it's called now. But anyway, um, they had been in this particular premises, uh, La Pentola, as it was called, La Pan, mm -hmm. in my Italian. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they'd had a 20-year lease from, from 1974, so they'd been well, well over five years and well over 14 years. So on the face of it, they're entitled to, you know, landlord was using grounds F and G again to, to be rid of them. Face of it, they're entitled to uh, a lot of compensation for disturbance. Uh, but they left 12 days, you know, they basically relocated 12 days before the, the end of the notice period. And it went to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal in that case said that in the real business world, you know, you can't be expected to stay until the bitter end. It's probably not good practice to leave 12 days. I'd, be, I'd feel better if I was at least using the property for storage, even if I'm running my restaurant somewhere else in town. And uh, they, um, and, you know, perhaps handing in the keys on the last day, just in case. But they said in that particular case, in the real business world, the 12 day gap is not sufficient enough to not be occupying for the uh, five years immediately preceding. So the contracting out uh, provisions didn't apply and the tenants got their compensation. How it squares with sight and sound and books, it's a different provision for one, but it's obviously a very similar provision, is one they left 12 days early and the other they left in December, was it? Uh, when the lease didn't come to an end until February. That's too big a gap. And that's my little podcast, Lizzie. Excellent. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, you've been listening to Unpacking the Case, the podcast by David Jones Bold, and we look forward to seeing you again in our next episode.